Yeah. I go into work every day smiling and people think I'm like a sociopath. So like nobody can go to work this happy and like their job. I'm waiting for the day you crack. I am oh, waiting man. for the day JP just loses his <laughs> shit. It will be ugly. There's a lot there's a lot is, built is up on there. Is it coming? No, no, no. I yeah, uh, I know. You can wait patiently though. Dear Sigmund. Should we introduce ourselves again and do the whole who you are? Sure. Yeah. I want to say who you are. Yeah. I'm the guy stuck on 222. Yeah. <laughs> the guy was just recently swearing at my steering wheel for 22 minutes on 222. Uh, I'm Dr. J.P. Shand, and I'm a board-certified psychiatrist and board-certified forensic psychiatrist. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is what I do talk to people and mm -hmm. I try I guess my MD I should qualify a psychologist being different than a psychiatrist psychiatrist goes to medical school mm -hmm. uh, and can prescribe medication and a psychologist is a PhD and they do generally talk therapies well generally PhDs mm -hmm. or some mm -hmm. PsyDs I think yeah the PSYD yep. Yeah, right, that's what we call PsyD. And I'm Shannon Miller. I'm an LCSW, so I'm not a PsyD or an MD, but instead a licensed clinical social worker um, specializing in behavioral health and the owner of Apricity Behavioral Health, which is an online um, therapy practice meeting the needs of expats living overseas, American expats living overseas. Expatriates. That's yes. what that means, right? Yeah. Previous patriots of the u.s or previous well i guess patriots if you're looking to any the country Latin interpretation of it basically it just means u.s citizens living abroad okay can you be an expat of lithuania yeah okay yeah you go somewhere else right but we don't treat clients where there's no cultural alignment oh, right because there has to be a certain belief in the western philosophy like i'm not going to do cbt on you if you don't believe in cbt if you have oh. a different perspective on mental health and how all that stuff works, there has to be a certain level of cultural alignment. With, for therapy to be most our, effective. Yes. Got it. I think to be effective at all. Yeah. Right? I can see that. And this is our podcast where we answer questions about life, mental health, psychiatry. It's just our job to give away information. Yeah. I think that was the strategy. I kind of came into this thinking this is a great way to reach a broader population to bring some of these things that are very scary, very stigmatized to just common people. Mm -hmm. Show that us as therapists and treatment providers are not tremendously scary people. Um, and kind of just brings it down to a level where it can be received in an entertaining way. The information can be received in an entertaining way. Very much less clinical. Yeah, I don't like it clinical. Yeah, it's not, not here clinical. At least. I think clinical, you got to do what you got to do. I do. I don't got to do that. I love my job. I love my job. You do? Yeah. I go into work every day smiling and people think I'm like a sociopath. So like nobody can go to work this happy and like their job. I'm waiting for the day you crack. I am oh, waiting man. for the day JP just loses his <laughs> shit. It will be ugly. There's a lot. There's a lot is, built is up it under coming? there. Is it coming? No, no, no. Damn. I uh, I know. I can wait patiently though. 
I will. You push my button sometimes. You're just pushing me Good. closer to the edge, just like slowly. And then one day, <laughs> off you go. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So should we dive right in and get to our first question? Please. Okay. Hi, Shannon and JP. I have a question about um, being stuck at home for the COVID response for so long has a different effect on me and my husband. My husband is very much a social butterfly and is really struggling with not being social during this time. I'm more of a homebody and am very happy to stay home and not interact with others. But he is really starting to hit some, I believe, depression. And how do I help balance that because I just don't understand his social need. Interesting question. Ooh, well, we are hitting the year mark. I mean, yeah, it's been a while. I wrote an article for the paper. I sent that to you, right? I know. Yeah, yeah. I got it. It's a good article. <laughs> one year of COVID. One year of social isolation. One year of uncertainty. One year of um, a lack of dependability on the resources that you once were used to. And whether that be toilet paper or income you know those resources have been two essentials yeah <laughs> um and then what this question is getting at the heart of it sounds like is really the social isolation that her husband who sounds let's just say maybe more of an extrovert than mm -hmm. she is and she mm -hmm. kind of described herself a little bit as an introvert mm -hmm. um that he is struggling with that social isolation a little more than she is and her question i think correct me if i'm wrong is how can I be more of a support to him? I mean, yeah, that's what I heard as well. Basically, how can I empathize with him and understand where he's coming from? And I think just one, understanding you come from a different perspective is the first part. And second to that then would just be asking, what can I do to help? Is there something I can do? And then just listening and seeing what there is. Very well, very likely there is nothing you can do right now right mm. all around the world we're in various stages of lockdown nothing we can do yeah there is a term that that you probably use in therapy is active listening that term of you know when when people say i just need somebody to listen right now there's this theory of not just like sitting there dead silent and just being a you know sounding board but rather this active listening participating empathizing um understanding where that individual is coming from um not listening so you can choose your response back which is so common in just just common language. Like when you're sitting here talking, I'm thinking, what am I going to say? That's not active listening. What did Act you say? <laughs> huh? What? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I brought this up the other day. Oh, and this is, uh, man, I am really I, good at going off topic. But this idea of automatisms in language where you'll pass somebody on the street and you'll say, hey, what's up? And they'll be like, Good as they walk by, and that is such a common experience in human interaction, shows that we just kind of have these canned responses and this like, I've gotta be good, I've gotta answer the question um, the way that that person wants me to answer the question so that I don't disrupt their day. Because if somebody really said, hey, what's up? And you say, oh, you know, I'm kind of having a rough time, I'm really socially isolated at home, uh, my wife doesn't really understand because she's kind of an introvert, nobody wants to hear that really. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that this wife is saying that I do want to hear that. I do want to help process this with my husband. And that alone, maybe him just knowing that. So like Shannon said, just tell him you're here for him. 
Uh, he can bring anything he wants to you, which he probably knows. Um, but know that this is the current time that is unchangeable. You know, if you're going to follow CDC guidelines, then you're going to be socially isolated, you know, for this time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say she used the word depression. So always and obviously look for clinical signs of depression. I mean, if this is a true signs and symptoms of major depressive disorder, I would say a therapist could really help. Uh, talking with a psychiatrist could really help. Even talking with a family provider. If it is, if there are severe signs and symptoms, you know, changes in sleep, appetite, energy, concentration. So I just don't want that to go unmissed and say, oh, it's just the pandemic. Because there could be something underlying this. Right. But isn't this then a good time to talk about risk management? In terms of? Mental health versus physical health. Tell me. Let's calculate what is the actual risk of me contracting COVID or giving COVID to somebody else versus the risk of me not having any social interaction. Can I make a calculated risk to suit this mental health need that I have, to meet this mental health need? Can I go hang out with my friends because my mental health desperately needs it and I'm willing to take the risk? Yeah, and I like the calculated risk idea. You're right. So I know people who have not left their homes for months and months and months have, you know, family members just drop off things at the front door and leave and, you know, not even even getting close or making eye contact with any social beings. Um, But then, you know, so there are some extremes that people are wanting to say, I'm going to mitigate each and every risk because my anxiety dictates that I cannot emotionally tolerate the risk of contracting because the virus. I let anxiety rule my life yeah or, or it does rule my life you know it just this is the way that I'm built or and I'm too scared to confront my anxiety <laughs> and I guess there could be treatments there uh, and then the other side is well I'm willing to follow this guideline and say I'll stay six feet apart uh, I'll wear a mask within these limitations and just make sure that if you're gonna do social interactions that you follow certain guidelines say my anxiety can tolerate this level in order to prevent emotional distress. Right, but we have to acknowledge that emotional distress is as real as physical distress. Absolutely, and 100%. That's the point where we're at now is saying, I'm going to take the calculated risk. I'm going to go hang out and have dinner with friends tonight because if I don't, I'm going to lose my shit. I'm willing to take the risk. Oh, and by the way, 50% of the people there are vaccinated. You yeah. know, so then when you figure that in, I mean, you just have to consider all factors and do what you're comfortable with and with full transparency to the people that you're with. That's a great point, because if, yeah, you don't want to be that person who's shirking the guidelines and saying, well, I don't really believe in this and I don't really care. And so I'm going to not wear my mask into Lowe's. By the way, I went to Lowe's the other day and it was like 50 percent of people aren't wearing masks. They're just walking around. Their kids aren't wearing masks. I was like, COVID doesn't uh, go to Lowe's. It goes to Home Depot. <laughs> We just lost our sponsor of Home Depot. I know. Home Depot, if you were listening, I still like you. Um, yeah, so I, I guess to get to the heart of the issue is just do active listening. Uh, talk about maybe, you know, ways to mitigate the isolation, you know, and whether that be, you know, throwing a Zoom party for him or whether it be throwing a socially distanced, you know, gathering in the yard now that the weather is turning nice um, or, uh just maybe being that person that he knows he married, who is the introvert and is probably the balance to him. You know, I married an introvert. I'm a, I'm a really probably 
pathologically extroverted person. I would agree. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and so there's that, a whole bunch of us waiting for you to crack yeah, that. Yeah, like, seriously, there's yeah. an audience. But the balance of having that introvert in my life or that person who really is my rock and the stability and mm-hmm. seeing that person getting along without social interaction and being happy reading a book quietly in front of the fireplace. Uh, that actually brings a lot of comfort to me. And I say, oh, you know what? I can do this. Oh, I mean, it isn't so bad. And I can focus on the things I need to focus on. And, you know, mm-hmm. so maybe there's a lot of value in her just being her mm-hmm. and not trying to be there for him and just showing him the well, joys of the quiet. There's also people like their problems. Yeah, don't that's try to probably going to be another question away, coming. Right? Don't take <laughs> the problem away from somebody. Don't try to solve it for them. Be supportive. Be an active listener. But don't try to solve the problem for them. Yes. Because what you communicate when you say, here, let me solve this for you, is I really think you're too dumb to handle this yourself, so let me take over. It parentifies. Mm. It creates this parentification thing in the relationship. So you just want to say, what can I do for you? What do you need from me? And then you do what they say. I would really yeah. caution against solving the issue for them. And in I COVID, like that. there, may not, an, there may not be there may not be a solution. Right. It might just be, well, this is where we're at. Suck it up. Mm-hmm. Which I hate saying that, but it's kind of where we are. Yeah. Right. The soft end to this pandemic is also probably going to cause a lot of this kind of uncertainty. You know, the soft ending saying just like there was not like one day. It's like June 1st is the end of pandemic day. You know, there's no there's not going to be a real hard stop. It's just going to be this slow, gradual transition Where back. Everybody into normalcy. just stops wearing their masks. Right. Right. Burns them in effigy. Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Mask burning day. Oh, that would be kind of fun. I would look forward to that. <laughs> All right. Hit us with the next question. Next question. Dear Sigmund. With everything going on in the world today, with COVID and on top of all that I am dealing with, the loss of my brother, I just feel like I want to mentally check out for a while. But with my responsibility at work, how do I keep things from overloading my system? Oh, man. I'm sorry for your Asked loss. Asked a billion people in the world. Yeah. 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 I'll just start. The first thing that jumped out to me was and the loss of my brother. I'm really sorry for your loss, listener. Um <sighs> Oh my, yeah. Can you tell me more? What was the what was the real heart of the question again? How do they deal with stuff without overloading their system? Like they'd like to check out, but they can't. Yeah. So what do they do? I hope checking out doesn't mean like, you know. No, I think checking out. Well, like mentally check out is okay. what she said. Okay. Just avoid. We'll call it avoidant. Yeah. Like I just want to go down the rabbit hole of avoidant behaviors, but the logical part of me says I can't do that. Smart. And so I would say first thing is make room for the stress. Own it. I'm stressed. Don't deny it. Don't, I shouldn't be stressed right now. I should be handling this well. That just makes everything worse. Like you, you cannot shame anyone into better behavior, including yourself. Yeah, that's a really good So statement. own your humanism. I'm stressed. This has me stressed out. Make room for it and accept it. Okay. Then I would also say build in anticipation points of your life, which is give yourself little incremental things to look forward to. If it's, I got through this hour, now I'm going to go play a video game for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Or I got through the day, I'm going to reward myself with X. It's the short, medium, and long-term things to look forward to. 
right? Because how many Very times so. have we like worked at a shitty job that we don't like, but man, that week of vacation is what kept us going. Every day we got up and kept going because we knew we were taking that vacation. It's the same concept. You can really put up with a lot if you know the reward is coming. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. And I like that idea of the of the short-term goal with the reward. Um, on my unit, we call them sometimes behavioral plans, where if if you can succeed at X, Y, and Z, you know, go to this many groups or, you know, this many hygiene, you know, things that you can do, you'll earn this reward. Um, so we use that in the most acute disorders mm-hmm. as well. I think it's also important not to look at it like a childlike thing. Mm-hmm. We all go vote to get the sticker. Like it works with adults as well. You know, it's like we all respond to this extrin- extrinsic reward system. Yes. Don't shame yourself for saying, do I really, I should really be able to do this on my own. Why do I need to like have this whole elaborate system? Um, because it's like the pandemic apocalypse. Yeah, and like, humans are wired this way too. What you're saying works because we're we're wired this way. Yeah. You know, our brains are rewired in a in a reward system, kind of a circuit. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So just make space for it. And I would also say, um, when things get really tough, if you can and you have the ability in the moment to sort of be mindful of what you're thinking. And I, by the way, I hate that term mindful. It is so packaged and branded right now. <laughs> Anyhow, um, just being aware of like, huh, what was I thinking right before I did this thing that I really don't like that I do, right? What was the thought that precipitated the action? Yes. Because sometimes it can be a split second and you really, like, I didn't think anything, I just did it. Yeah, but if we could slow that down and sort of stretch it out, there is a thought that occurred in there. What is that thought? Because I would almost guarantee there's going to be a, a pattern of thoughts that lead to this sort of behavior of I'm overwhelmed and I can't do it. Yeah. Right. All within the caveat of the world's overwhelming right now, right? Very much so. And the other thing I often say, if – if you're rewarding yourself with like brownies, if you come out of the pandemic 10 pounds heavier than when you went in, in so what? You came out of the pandemic. Yeah. You can lose that 10 pounds. If if what it takes is you rewarding yourself and I don't want like this to turn into like addictive eating, but like if you reward yourself with like, you know what? I'm going to go get ice cream on Friday. Go do it. Go do it. Do what you have to do yeah. to get through it. All bets are off at this point. Go ahead. Temper me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think everything you said is right. I, I, I really, you know, and this is the basis for what many listeners might understand is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. That this is the true basis of why this therapy is so powerful. I like that, you know, your statement about thought to emotion or or what we call trigger to emotion to behavior. Um, and you can rewire that. Uh, it just takes practice and it takes time and it takes some guidance. So I, I would say to this person too, I mean, you don't have to do it alone. There are absolutely professionals out there who can help you with this. Um, and not just two folks on your podcast trying to you know throw darts at the wall here, but really, I mean, there are serious professionals who can really help create a plan for you to really help take advantage of the way that your brain is wired um, and 
recircuit some of these things so that you feel more reward uh, and really can cope a little bit better. I would also say grieve, right? The pandemic in and of itself. To grieve. The pandemic in and of itself has put all of us in the grief cycle, right? Because grief isn't just the loss of a person. Grief is loss in general. And then we have our secondary and tertiary losses associated mm -hmm. with it, right? So you lost your brother. But then you also lost the things you guys used to do together, right? Mm -hmm. You lost the rituals. You lost the um, unspoken, like, you just got to look at each other across the Thanksgiving mm -hmm. table. And in that look, it communicates just fucking nuts and here we go again right like <laughs> also the comfort of like somebody just knowing that somebody is on the other end of their phone i've heard this a lot in practice that like you know i didn't talk to my sister for 20 years but just knowing that they were there to be able to pick up that phone if we were to talk you know that that, that loss but own it and make space for it it hurts mm. and we know that emotional hurt impacts us in the same region of our brain as physical hurt yes Yes, very true. So don't underestimate the hurt that this is and just give it space. And we know grief is no longer a cycle. It's waves. Some days will be good. Some days will be bad. Mm -hmm. It's about riding the wave of grief. Yeah. So. And being able to recognize when you can't do it alone. Yeah. I tell this, you know, we took the DSM-5, we took uh, grief out of the DSM-5. I, I might have mentioned this in a previous episode. We did? I, I think maybe. But it, it, the DSM-5 no longer has grief as, uh, as one of our uh, diagnosable conditions. Because what happened is, oh no, it was a lecture I was giving. I remember now. It was a lecture that I was giving before. Um, because major depressive disorder is so impairing that it doesn't necessarily matter what's causing it because one of the criterion is it is impacting you so much in either social or occupational uh, aspects of your life. You know, we're talking about feelings of, you know, tearfulness, sadness, uh, most of the day, more days than not mm -hmm. for two or more weeks. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the definition of a major depressive episode associated with those periods of depression, sad, down, tearful. Um, then you have these sub-criteria, changes in sleep, changes in appetite, um, changes in energy. Uh, some people get irritability, uh, you know, thoughts of death. Do you have the book memorized? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, to our one listener, this book is probably about 700 pages. <laughs> <laughs> Something I spent a lot of time with. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's a few others. Um, and... and uh, some people actually get so depressed they get psychotic. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah, I've major depressive disorder with psychotic. Oh, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah. major yeah. depressive disorder with psychotic features. Um, so these are these are things um, that at a certain point the cause of it shouldn't be an excuse for not treating it. So mm -hmm. it could be the loss of a person. It could be the loss of a job. It could just be the neurobiochemical you know alteration in your brain that requires you know a change in uh, you know serotonin levels but whatever the cause is it's impacting you so much that it's clinically diagnosable so in other words don't not go to the doctor or a therapist because you're like oh i know why i'm sad it's i'm grieving my brother right. if that sadness takes over and impairs your function exactly right okay because we know cuz isn't it true that at a certain point how do i say it that the 
external things stop and like basically your biochemical things start changing and the depression takes on a life of its own that even though the external thing can resolve we've now altered the brain chemistry that you may not necessarily very much so yeah so there's a couple theories there are a couple you know mind theories behind it and how it works and you know still admittedly our science is not caught up with understanding all of the neurochemical changes that lead to these emotions mm-hmm. um, but uh, but certainly the absence of the stressor or the inciting agent uh, that thing going away well first of all it's always going to be a thing right unless it's totally reversed uh, but the biochemical changes and the experiences and the uh, long-lasting effect that that emotional toll took on you these things are going to live much longer okay. than the actual event okay yeah all right all right Jesse Give us another one. Dear Sigmund, my mother sent me a lot of mixed messages when I was a child, between an ages probably six to nine, specifically when it came to bedtime. Growing up in a strict fundamentalist Christian household, I was afraid of a lot of things as a kid. Shout out to the fear of nighttime demon possession, which made bedtime a struggle. Whenever I would have nightmares or troubles falling asleep, half of the time my mother comforted me and provided a feeling of safety and comfort so I could fall asleep. But the other half of the time, she would get angry, lose her patience, and yell at me or lock her bedroom door so I wouldn't be able to come in to her for help, all while trying to force me to deal with my sleep issues alone. I realized recently that as an adult, from time to time, I still struggle with the ability to self-soothe, especially when there are stressful events going on in my life, such as family drama issues or deep inner work, which triggers these old feelings and emotions. And sometimes I fear or dread my own bedtime ritual. I start to feel anxious as bedtime approaches, and no matter how many yoga poses I do, (laughs) baths and aromatherapy, I still sometimes dread the act of falling asleep, and in many cases, feel an extreme amount of fear and panic. If my husband falls asleep first, I try to keep it to myself. Instead of asking my spouse for help because of the guilt and fear I felt when I made my mom upset about my sleep issues, but the fear begins to spiral pretty quickly. What are some ways to finally break this cycle and reteach myself some healthy ways to self-soothe and not be afraid of going to sleep when I am stressed? Also, is this normal for adults who experience childhood trauma? Yes. <laughs> Just leave it at that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> sounds, All right, next question. No. Sounds totally That was good. a really, that's a, that was a, a I mean, Thank you, listener, for one. I love the backstory. Yeah, I, me too. That gives some context. That really gives some value um, uh, to to the question, even deeper than just a question in itself. Uh, so, thank you, listener, for taking so much time to write uh, such a thorough question. Um, How fucked up is that, though? Well, yeah. I mean, it certainly isn't healthy. To you know, to okay, so I, but I it's think the vacillating back and that's forth. That's what I was gonna it's say. The, which is the def- definition of anxious attachment. I don't know what I'm gonna get when I walk through the door, or in this case, when I'm like losing it at bedtime. Am I gonna get kind mommy or am I gonna get mean mommy? Yeah. How unnerving can that be for a little kid? A hundred percent under. I, I'm gonna say so. <laughs> I think that one of the most important things in child development is consistency, 
dependability, stability, this kind of kind of, children learn, not just children, humans learn uh, through their lifetime through pattern recognition and identifying, you know, cause and effect. And that's pretty much one of the bases for all of our personalities is understanding cause and effect. I do this is and this is the result. Effect. effect. Cause and effect okay. changes your affect if it's unreliable. Oh, <laughs> and an right. affect is uh, obviously, yeah. So, so the term affect, which is the joke that Shannon was confusing herself with by the end of it, was the, um, it's like uh, our, our interpretation of your mood. So if I say I'm happy, or if Shannon said, hey, I'm really happy, but you said it with this like stone cold face, I'd say Shannon's mood was reported as happy, although her affect was constricted and irritable. I know. I was just talking about the grammatical so. mistake. <laughs> I still can't get it right. Well, it's good to know. I don't know. These are these weird little teaching they moments teach that, that I me- like. Medical school. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So this, uh, this uh, our Dr. sponge Grammar. years. <laughs> I'm terrible at grammar, by the way, too. Our sponge years are um, really early on. So where we learn all of our understanding of how we behave in the world and what response we get in the world happens between like zero and four, like somewhere in there. So understanding this like emotional reciprocity, if I behave this certain way, I get this response, you know, a cry will get me either attention or uh, ignored or, um, you know, if I... You can learn all sorts of negative behaviors in this, too. A lot of patients will bring their kids to me, and they'll say, hey, well, you know, Billy keeps punching his kid in the face, and we have these long talks, and we talk about it, and we talk, have sit-downs, and we, talk, 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 talk. yeah. And I'm like, well, that's the feedback he's getting, right? He's actually, that's like a reward, because all of a sudden, he gets, you know, mommy's undivided attention when he does this one thing. So there are all these, you know, kind of... um cause and effects that kids learn. Now, if those things are really unstable, unpredictable, um, that causes emotional chaos. That causes an internal anxiety, like what you were just saying, Shannon, which is very smart, this idea of, um, am I gonna get this mommy or that mommy? Am I gonna get this response or that response? And that does not reflect externally, that all of a sudden gets internalized over developmental years. Well, I don't know how to predict my environment. I am unreliable predictor of my environment where really the outside is the unpredictable part. Right, because children, think about it from the kid's perspective. Your whole entire existence is dependent upon this adult. So the child brain cannot afford to think of the sole thing keeping them alive as a nutcase because that's too risky because that equals death. Because if my mom's a nutcase, she's not going to take care of me and I'm going to die. I'm not going to have a house to live in. I'm not going to have food on the table. This is what the brain does. Because the brain's job is always looking for danger. Keep me alive. Keep me alive. So what we do as kids is these absolutely like phenomenal mental gymnastics where we make it about ourselves. Right? I control. If I just do this, then mommy will be this way. Mm-hmm. Right. So kids internalize it as, well, I did that. Mommy reacted that way because of me, because it's way too threatening to consider mom's fucking nuts and she's off her medication. What five year old can comprehend that? Right. But a five year old can say, oh, I colored outside the line. So therefore, you know, mom's going to lock me in my bedroom tonight to a five year old. That makes sense because it gives them. A sphere of control which mm-hmm. means they will survive yeah or this 
yeah, this idea that, you know, cause and effect, it's very hard. Object permanence, like outside of oneself, is really hard to understand. Right. You know, things that are, you know, their emotional dysregulation. It really is when they say kids are self centered and so selfish. Yeah, that's true, because that's all they know. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mind, the theory of the mind that somebody else can be thinking something different than me is very rare for a child under a certain developmental age to understand. Right, right. And so I would say in healing this wound, I mean, I was kind of half joking when I first gave that, yeah, answer. Is it normal? Yeah, totally normal. What's happened is basically your brain needs updating. And the coping mechanisms that it took on in childhood it worked. Whatever it did, I mean, you're still here with us today writing this question, so clearly it worked. Whatever it is your brain did to get through that time, the brain hasn't updated itself and said, hey, mom's not here anymore. I'm sleeping next to my husband. There is no danger. Um, Nighttime demon possession hasn't happened yet. There's really (laughs) no good indicator that it's coming, although, you know, mom might like you to think that it still is. You need to update that coping mechanism. And it's literally like talking to yourself and just saying, I am okay. And looking around, I am laying next to my husband. I'm not in my childhood bed. Mm -hmm. You know, this is my environment. I am now this adult. And it's sort of doing what we would call reparenting the inner child. Mm -hmm. Right? And this is where it gets all like woo-woo, as some people would say about the whole inner child. But we all have it. We all have an inner child. We're all... Products of our childhood. Yeah. 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 And so it's talking to that little girl or boy inside of you and just saying, you are okay because adult me is here to take care of you. And I promise you, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Mm. I will protect you from anything that comes through that door or any nightmare or anything like that. You're like, I'm going to talk to myself as if I'm another person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's coaching. Are. So, you know, self-coaching yeah. and. Uh, yeah, you really are. Yeah. I, and I think it, you're, you're right. You have to separate your logical mind from your emotional mind. I fully believe in multiplicity of the mind. Yeah. Right. So we're all made up. Of, we're all a little bit Sybil. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just gave away my age. About that. <laughs> I just gave away my age. Is that Nell in the woods? Is that. Was that that one too? What was the one Jodie Foster and she was like a feral child in the woods alone? Nell. Remember that one? Nell. That was called Nell. Nell. All right, all right, fine. Yeah. Confusing Sybil with Nell. So multiple personality, <laughs> we now have fancied up and call it disassociative identity disorder, but mm-hmm. multiple personalities. We are not the same person at work who we are around our parents. We're not the same person around our parents or at work that we are with our spouse. We are not the same person who we are when we are with friends, right? They're all you. It's just different facets of you. And so if how many of you notice that when you get around your parents, you revert to the child roles? Like you find yourself asking permission for stuff that like you wouldn't normally or like you're checking in. And you're like, what the hell am I doing? You know, <laughs> that's you. That's your inner child coming out and taking over at that point right like I got to be the child they're the parent they're the authority figure is it okay you know this is you parenting that part of you and you soothing that part of you and giving basically what you never had the great thing about kids is pretend play right kids pretend and it's amazing and it's how they build so many skills why we lose that skill 
I don't know, because it works. So yeah. you pretending that you are parenting the little you is effective. Insert yourself into your memories. Be the parent that you needed in those moments. So for this person, oh, it's taking that, that little child. girl. Yeah, oh, coach yeah. that little girl. Like, unlock the door and say, I am so sorry that your mommy is doing this to you right now. It is not okay. You are safe. Let's turn a nightlight on, you know. Let's check under the bed. Let's make some monster spray or demon spray or whatever it is, whatever mm -hmm. the fear is. Let's create sort of this proactive thing that will keep it away, right? Just picturing her anxiety over her husband finding out about this too now, and she's like writing in a crayon on the side of her hairspray, demon spray. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> with stickers, butterfly stickers right. all over it, right? Um, <laughs> But it is about going back in and reparenting, being the parent you needed in that moment. Yeah. So we would also call that guided imagery if we were to like dress it up in like yeah. fancy psychological terms. Going back into your memory, having the memory again, but rewriting it with your adult self in the memory, being the parent that you needed. That's great advice. It's not easy to do, though. No. It's not easy. No, 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 no. It's, and it's very counterintuitive at times. You know, my joke about, you know, doing this thing, you know, halfway through the question, she's talking about her anxiety over her husband knowing that this is part of her and this and, you know, they, you know certainly this is a scary thing to tackle on your own. I, again, I, this is one where I'd recommend, you know, definitely seeking some outside guidance to help walk you through this, at least for the first part of it, until you can understand the skills and, you know, get over kind of the anxiety over addressing these things. But also, you know, couples therapy can be huge in this. Um, really? You know, well, I would say opening up some of those things. She's clearly indicating that she's having significant, you know, uh, difficulty with her husband and her anxiety over him knowing about this. Was that this question? Yeah, right? And, no, and she has panic if her husband falls asleep first. Not necessarily about him, but oh, just that yeah. he's not there to protect Sorry. her. Yeah, this anxiety. And these demons. And he probably doesn't really know, and now she's even worse, and she doesn't want to bother him. And so so maybe even just expressing some of this so he can understand it in a, in a really rational context, because I'm sure she's worried about talking about these things. You really. know what my husband would say? <laughs> <laughs> he would look at me like I was crazy. Well, that's what she's, you know, I could imagine that this person is actually having some Like he would look at me like I that. have like two heads and something was going on. Yeah, which so, is why you wouldn't bring it up and you're going to try to deal with it on your own and you're just going to pretend to be asleep so you can fall asleep and then you're going to go, you know, panic for the next four hours. Which is why I'm saying getting this out in the open, not just couples therapy or couples, you know, I'm not saying there's an emotional component to the relationship. What I'm saying is bringing this up in a context where you feel safe and that you can bring this up. You can bring this up. Your husband is not going to leave you if, you know, he's afraid that you're going to fall asleep <laughs> first. Or you're afraid. You know, well, that part, I mean. Bye bye yeah, demon over him. <laughs> right. Demon right. be gone. <laughs> Um, but, you know, there, there could be a context for something like that where you could feel like you're, you, if you get your own therapy and then bring him in on this and say, hey, this is something I've really struggled with for a long time and I'm just getting comfortable with it myself. I want you to know what I've been going through or I want you to, you know, just understand this because I'm just learning to understand it too. Don't freak out if you yeah. wake up and I'm spraying you he's down. Not, well, yeah, but he's not going to be worried about, you know, this is something that is very real. I see this person feeling kind of alone in this question, too. Is this normal? 
And Shannon's initial say, yup, to the yep. answer to this question, yeah, this is a totally normal response to a really traumatic experience as a child. And let's not underestimate that trauma. Trauma is another branded, overused word, I think. But I think in this case, it truly does qualify. Yes. Where some people might say, oh, it's just monsters under the bed. Don't be silly. This is horrifyingly traumatic for Nighttime a child. Nighttime demon, demon possession. possession. Yes. That's... You know, I was thinking about that. that that's not Monsters, Inc. As we were listening to this question. Sully. Right. <laughs> this... um. The prayer, uh, as I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I die before I wake. Yeah, I never really thought about those words, my soul to keep. Yeah, Uh, that is a really scary thought for kids, you know, going to sleep. I never really thought about it. The The, The idea of, you know, as a child, I'm reciting this thing, like if I die in my sleep, I hope I'm okay and with God. You know, but that last thought before bed is nothing in comparison to this idea that this mother was bestowing mm-hmm. upon her child of, you know, if you go to sleep, you're going to become possessed by a demon. And oh, goodness, goodness yep. gracious. Yep. Oh. All right, Jesse. Dear Sigmund, I am so sick of watching or hearing about the latest BS behavior my sister is displaying. She has been diagnosed as, quote, bipolar, unquote, and certainly exhibits crazy ass behavior. I find the whole thing exhausting, and frankly, I don't want to be around it or care to try to be sympathetic. I know it sounds selfish, but I just don't want to be around it or live with the stress of watching it. So I don't. She at times will take her meds and often does it. So it's this endless cycle of someone that you can tolerate and then someone you just want to run away from. Am I going to burn in hell? No. (laughs) Shouldn't I be more supportive? I just feel this is her issue to solve. And over the years, I've taken enough of her crap and need to protect my own feelings. Mm. That's that's a really interesting question. So the question is, oh, I, I don't feel like forward. I can be a caretaker. Do I have to be? And if I'm not, should I feel guilty about it? And the answer to that question is no, don't feel guilty. If you don't have the capacity to be a caretaker for somebody, you're probably not going to be a tremendously effective caretaker I don't even think she wants to be a caretaker I think she just doesn't want to even be in her presence when she's off her meds and acting crazy I think she just doesn't even want to be around it that's That's the that's the impression I have and I would say then don't you know you you know your boundaries that's what I'm thinking if this person does have somebody to help them through emotionally you know difficult times or during true cycles of severe mental illness bipolar disorder is a severe mental illness um, she put it in quotes, so it sounds like maybe she's not totally, you know, on board with the Everybody's diagnosis. Bipolar. <laughs> Everybody's bipolar. <laughs> that was a term. That's probably for another podcast. We can discuss that episode. But the um, the idea is, it sounds like she's just kind of very frustrated with this behavior, and does not feel that she's in a position to be able to be an empathetic support, and does not want to. And I will say. To our listener, that's okay. You know, if your sister is safe and she's doing okay, you know, oftentimes I will say, um, you know, seek the professional help when you need it, right? So uh, a lot of people say, well, what do I, what do I do when somebody calls me and says that they're suicidal? Um, Do I talk them through it? What should I say to them? I say, you, you have to get professional help. I mean, immediately you should, you know. Mm-hmm. Call 911, get the address, get the location. You need to help them with an acute intervention at that time. 
if there's an imminent risk or an imminent danger, you know, and you can say those are the times that I can be of use. And if she feels that she can't be of use during the inter, you know, interim or the non-emergent times or those other times, I would say. Um, I've got a more hard ass approach than even that. <laughs> Let me plug, okay, before you go into it, let me plug one more thing. Uh, NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, is an incredible resource for people who are family members of individuals with mental illness. They have family support groups. They have um, uh, trauma support groups, loss groups. I mean, really an incredible array of support for individuals who are uh, close to those with mental illness. And I would say definitely take advantage of it. I can't remember if it's NAMI, N-A-M-I, uh, .org or .com, but uh, visit that org. website. So here's what I say. You are allowed to take up space as well. And if you cannot bear witness to this anymore, watch the cycle play out, then don't. Know your boundaries, right? And we sometimes violate our own boundaries um, by just like, well, I don't really like it, but I'll do it anyway, or I can put up with it for just now. And then we walk away just totally livid and unable, like, why do I always do that? You know, it's always the same thing. Boundaries. Know your boundaries. How do I know where my boundary is? I look for resentment. If I am feeling resentment, that is my cue to go back and say, okay, where did I start to feel resentment? Well, it's when she started to do this. Okay, that's where your boundary is then. You want to put that boundary just on this side of resentment. I'll tolerate it up to this, but once it crosses over that, I get too pissed off to deal with her. Then that's where your boundary is, is before you get to that, I don't want to deal with her stage, right? Thing about boundaries is if there wasn't a boundary there previously and now you're coming in and saying, hey, there's gonna be a boundary here now and I'm not gonna blah, 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 blah. People are gonna test it. They're mm -hmm. gonna push up against it. It is your job to hold the boundary. You don't give in, you don't change it just because somebody else doesn't like it. It's your job to hold the boundary, right? Mm -hmm. Why? because you are valuable as well. You get to define what's okay in your world. Unapologetically, mm -hmm. I'm or okay with this. Or what you have the capacities for. Or I'm not okay with that. Right, I don't have the capacity to deal with the roller coaster you're on. I'm sorry you're on the roller coaster. I don't wanna be near it. Right, I'll help you as much as I can, but at this point, I can't. But even if she doesn't line. wanna help. Oh, that's fair too. Which is Even if she's like, I don't want to help. I don't yeah. want to see it. Yeah. Then she doesn't have to. And that's, I think that's where I take a little bit more of a hard-ass approach of like, yeah. she doesn't have to help if she doesn't want to. If she does and she's okay with that, by all means, mm -hmm. go ahead. But use your own internal sense of like, I'm okay with this, but not that, as your guiding sort of light mm -hmm. through the whole thing. This person's gonna need, so you can, it's her anxiety with that is palatable. That you can you can feel the sense of, anxiety that she has over is this okay am i gonna burn in hell uh and that is something to deal with as well when when shannon's talking about when you're talking about this idea of this hard line that mm -hmm. is something that is not a comfortable uh thing for anybody no no uh -huh. and it's going to take a lot of practice because i can hear it in the question already yeah. it's like i already have so much concern over not being able to do this you know so so mm -hmm. yeah maybe you know like I said, NAMI or your own treatment or, or learning those boundaries and then practicing them. But I'm okay, I'm here to tell you that it is okay to have the boundary. It is okay to say, I don't want to be around it or care to try to be sympathetic. 
That is totally fine. That is where you are, and that is allowed to be just as it is. Mm-hmm. Period. I think that brings this episode to a close. It's a long what episode. It was. I hope we answered everything. I think so. If anyone has a question and then feels like we didn't answer their question, just write back in and be like, you didn't answer my question. Mm-hmm. What I meant was this. Go or what would really be great is if you left us an audio message where we could actually play and hear your voice rather than just hearing JP and Jesse and I mm-hmm. the whole time. Nobody um, listened to this far on the podcast, just so you know. Well, this is one going listener. into the ether. Yeah, one listener. yeah, they fell asleep 45 minutes ago. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so if you do have a question about mental health, about life, about psychiatry, about anything, check us out at DearSigmund.com. You can send us a direct email through the website, or you can go through our video, audio, or email messaging system. Um, pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And again, if you or a loved one have severe mental health issues or concerns, suicidality, homicidality, you must seek uh, immediate treatment uh, and do not replace any of what we are saying with uh, the your recommendation yeah, from your own doctor. This is solely for entertainment uh, and educational purposes only. <laughs>